This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. G'day, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. My voice is a bit hoarse at the minute because I was at the footy last night screaming for the Tigers and they lost yet again. What can I do? Nothing. I can just continue doing this introduction to a chat with the great Richie Faulkner from Judas Priest and now Elegant Weapons and... I'm going to say right off the bat that I was certainly not a skeptic, but I was looking forward to the possibility of this chat. It's clearly happened. And if you're on the fence, this is one of those chats that'll sway you in Richie's favor because he's a tremendous fella. Um, He's doing such a great job in Judas Priest, but uh, it's always great to hear the man behind the guitar share his thoughts on so many topics. The catalyst for the chat is due to the launch of an album called Horns for a Halo. It is the debut for Elegant Weapons. We discuss the album, the partners, the comrades that he's brought with him for the journey, such as Rex Brown from Pantera. And then we go behind the scenes. We learn all about how he joined Judas Priest. That's the origin story. I don't know whether that's out there. It might be, but I certainly haven't read it. But he talks about that here, and he discusses watching the Iron Maiden machine up close and personal when he was touring with Lauren Harris back in the day plenty of other topics that we dive into and I've got a tune to share with you if you are listening via the podcast apps you'll hear Horns for a Halo the title track from the album it's the best song on the album in my opinion killer tune one of the best of the year so far and once it's done we'll dive into the conversation you people on YouTube you know the deal I can't play music on the platform lest I get a copyright strike so here is the chat for you people on YouTube And here is the tune for you people on the podcast apps. And once it's done, we'll dive into the conversation. Either way, let's go.
Andrew. Richie, brother, how are you, mate? I'm doing good. How are you? Great. I owe you an apology for last week, brother. I, uh, buddy, work just got on top of me, and I worked right the way through our scheduled time. So I appreciate the uh, the uh, this opportunity to have a good conversation with you. <laughs> That's all right. It happens, and it might not be a good conversation. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I've listened to your other ones, mate. No, you, you're good at holding a conversation, so I appreciate that. But that, oh, that'd be the first. That'd be the first point, mate. Have you, have you found that that people this time around, or I suppose, you know, is this your first time you've had an opportunity to have a chat about something that's all yours? Yeah, I think so, especially uh, on this level. And obviously, uh, you know, the the band I'm connected to, obviously, people are interested in it in a different way. You know, you come from a legacy band like Priest. People are going to show an interest in what you do uh, on the side, you know. So there's definitely a different level of uh, interest because of that, for sure. Yeah, gotcha. Yep. Now, to my ears, with this album here, Horns for a Halo, it sounds like you've applied every bit of your experience in songwriting shops from your time in Priest. But I could be wrong here because people might not realise that I actually watched you, I'm sure I did, back in the day, back in 2008, performing with Lauren Harris when you were touring with Iron Maiden. So are these songs that you even had the genesis of way back then? Not as far back as that, no. But, I mean, you know, you're always... You know, even back then, I mean, you're always kind of looking. I was in bands, I was in cover bands, I was in original bands, honing those skills. You know, like how to. You know, you're always learning how to write a better song. You know, and, and still am. You know, even with Priest, like how do you write a better song? How do you write a better album? How do you make it better? Quote unquote. You know, better is a subjective term, obviously, but. Uh, as a writer, how do you write a better one than the last one? You know, mm-hmm. and it was the same back then, and it will always be that way. So, uh, you know, the, these songs have been around uh, since a couple of years before COVID, maybe. You know, ideas here and there, uh, song starts, maybe melodies, maybe choruses. Uh, and I think it was the pandemic, really, that was I was able to consolidate all those ideas and get some new ones written. Um, and put them together and see what I got. You know, did I have an album or an EP or a band that I could put together and, and went from there, really. Hmm. It sounds like a killer 70s style heavy metal album, but with that great modern production that Andy's known for. So, just for the listener's perspective, okay, you've nailed the Dio era Sabbath with the title track Horns for a Halo, but you've also got other songs where you've got Uriah Heat, of course, Priest, you've got Deep Purple as well in there, but there are other some, there's some other more obscure new wave of British heavy metal references like Satan and stuff in there as well. So, was that. Is that just the way you write, or did you actually have to go? I'm going to write something that wouldn't have been out of place circa 1978. No, nothing. Nothing's conscious. Uh, I mean, primarily to me, I sit down with the guitar, and it's it's the riff first. Uh, it's the riff or the melody, um, and it all comes from that era, like you said. You know, I grew up in a certain era. I was influenced by I mean I mean more than just 70s and 80s and 90s rock. I mean there's a lot of pop influence in there as well. I grew up in the early 80s and there was a lot of, you know, there's Duran Duran floating around and Ultravox and Roxy music and all that sort of stuff that, you know, obviously isn't evident on this record, but you know, you're influenced by your influences and that's just you can't help that, you know. But as far as the rock influence, it was uh my dad's influence of, you know, Deep Purple and Lizzie and uh, mm. Sabbath, Hendrix, 
Um, and that stuff is who you are and you can't really escape it. And that's what comes out when you strap on the guitar. Um, so it's not a conscious thing to hit those notes uh, stylistically. It's just what comes out. I'm pretty sure we're about the same age. So how, how did you avoid grunge? It would have been easy, surely, for you to start a Soundgarden-style band or a Pearl Jam-style band, but you you kept at it with the chops that you've got, and you've got this great 70s and early 80s-style lead vibe. I just uh, – I weren't – I wasn't really interested. I mean, I came into sort of um, – I mean – I mean, the early 90s for me was my early teens. Um, so that was when grunge was sort of taking hold. Uh, so I was getting into heavier music then, and I was looking for stuff that was going to be the next level of Lizzie and Purple and the stuff. Mm. So for me, it was Maiden, Priest, Pantera, Metallica. That was, for me, what I was attracted to musically um, because I was brought up on the twin guitar of Lizzie. Um, you know, that to me, the next level of that was Maiden and Priest. Um, you know, so that's where I went. The the Nirvana thing and the grunge thing and mm-hmm. even the Soundgarden. Soundgarden I got a little bit more. It sounded a bit more like Sabbath, you know, in places. But uh, it didn't really interest me. It wasn't technical enough. It didn't kind of satisfy my hunger for what I wanted to hear and what I wanted to play. Um, whereas, you know, Pantera did and Metallica did, and I, I kind of carried it on, on that vein. And then I got into cover bands and stuff like that. And we were playing Lizzie and Maiden and Priest. So I got, I got you know, stuck on that bent really. Mm. Um, but again, it is, it's kind of what I grew up on. Um, and it, the, the stuff that I listened to in my teens was a, an evolution. I felt was an evolution of what I was introduced to as a kid. Mm, yeah. Were you ever inspired by death and black metal? I mean, I've got a Cradle of Filth T-shirt on, but I specifically love the 90s era, Stuart Anstis's guitar playing in particular, but did that grab your attention? Not really. I think image-wise, definitely. I think it was uh, it was hard not to be um, influenced some way by the way that that whole image um, was. Uh, but musically, no, I mean... You know, melodically, you know, I'm a big fan of melody, and I think melodically, you know, falls short for me that stuff. Um, mm. You know, but that, that's part of the attraction of it um, for some people. But I'm a big fan of melody, so yeah, for me, it, it fell short. But the the image and I, I get all that, but it wasn't really high on my radar. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, look there, but for the grace of God, I go there and ask these sort of questions. So sign of the cross first. <laughs> but, <laughs> I've spoken to Rex before and he just comes across as an absolute pain in the ass, to be honest with you. And I know Mark Eglinton's had some issues with him as well, but you haven't. So how do you find that you get along with Rex? And can you tell me about your friendship with him? Well, I remember I met Rex years ago at an EMG pickups. It was a NAM show. I met him at an NAM show and we were there with EMG pickups. So I met him then. Mm. And then we got closer, um, I think it was just before the pandemic, uh, a couple of years before the pandemic, we got closer. He was up near where I live with some friends, and we we got together. We hung out a bit, and we we, we got closer after that. Um, uh, and again, like, I called him up one day, and I sent him some songs. I said, "I've got these songs. Uh, would you be interested in putting down the bass on the record?" Uh, and he he loved the songs. He dug the songs, and uh, he was able to 
put the songs down. And obviously, you know, the Pantera thing happened and he's he's doing that now, uh, which is great. But I was just grateful to him that he was able to do the record, you know. But, um, I mean, for me, you know, when I got the bass tracks off of Rex, that's when the record really came to life, really. Mm. Um, up until then, I'd, I'd, I'd got like programmed bass, like demo bass that I programmed with a keyboard just to... Mm. Just to have something there, just to make it sound. Just some guide know. tracks, yeah, we get it. Yeah. Exactly that. But when he sent them back, and it was like real bass. Not only was it real bass, but it was like Rex Brown real bright, real bass. <laughs> it was like, you know, dirty and uh, you know, gritty, and it was just like, I don't know, it just moved in the right way. It was just like, ah, oh, that's that's exactly what I needed. So I'm really thankful to him for, to be able to do that. To do that, so I'm not speaking properly. No, all good, brother. Yeah, no, it's it sounded a couple of, well, more than a couple of years ago. Now he was just in a bit of a funk around the Pantera Association, the legacy, and even bass playing. He just did not want to talk about it, which is crazy because, to your point, he's a magnificent bass player, such a groovy, melodic yet heavy at the same time. He's one of the he he unlocks the mystery of how to play bass in a band with Dime and Dime. You almost didn't need anybody else. It's just Dime, right? So. I'm glad you did it, mate, because we all might owe you a debt of gratitude on that one there because he's now back out there and playing bass again. Well, uh, you know, I can't speak for Rex, but, I mean, I think we all go through periods where, you know, we've had enough of it sometimes. You know, whatever it is we do, we've had enough, and sometimes we have to go through that to come back to it. I don't know if that was Rex's case, Mm -hmm. you know, but uh, I know, obviously, he was playing guitar and singing at some point in his own band. Uh, Yeah, that's what I copped him. I can't speak for him. Yeah. Yeah, that's when I caught right, him yeah. and he just, he was, he, like, of course, I was honouring the fact that, I can't remember the name of the smoke on this, there you go, I remember it. And he, right. uh, it, it's not a bad album, but frankly, he's, he's like me, mate, I'm a bassist who turned to guitar too, and we just don't have the same vibe. A bit like a guitarist mm-hmm. playing bass, you know what I'm talking about, no doubt you can shred on the bass, but you can tell when someone plays bass as opposed to guitar and vice versa. And uh, yeah, he just sort of, he, he didn't want to sort of talk, uh, a bit. Uh, conversation's a bit like the one I'm having with you, it just sort of goes where it sort of goes. Got to, right. you know, definitely we've got a reason to talk a catalyst, as I say in my introductions, and we we on, always honour that. But yeah, he just didn't want to talk about it. I thought it was sad because his um his baseline to floods is just all time. I mean, it's the heavy metal baseline in many ways, isn't it? I mean, not only was he playing with Dime, he was playing with Vinny as well, and he was like the the lukewarm water. To, to coin a phrase from Derek Smalls, but you know he fit in there, uh, a sound and a groove, and he kind of he was the glue between those two guys. Uh, and it's he's a legendary bass player for you know more than one reason. His sound, his swagger, and uh, I'm glad he's he's back up with Pantera playing bass again and uh, delivering that to the world. Really, you know, I'm glad he's back on the bass, playing the bass, and moving some serious air. Yeah, yeah, likewise too. But uh, look, something else. I think Ro- Ronnie's one thing, and I had a really a great conversation, a couple of hours conversation with Ronnie just when he got into the deep, uh, not deep purple, Blackmore situation there. Mm. And um, I, 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 sorry, I'll get to that in a sec. But I wanted to talk to you about Chris Williams because he's a hell of a drummer, mate. And uh, I noticed that a few years ago when he first did the Accept album there. So how did you hook up with him? Well, me, I don't live that far away from Christopher. Um, and, you know, I actually, Christopher actually recorded the record um, before Scott did. Um, 
I couldn't get it was, it was we were coming out of lockdowns there were still restrictions on travel I wanted to get the recording started uh, and I've I knew Chris you know before you know as, as a friend really before I recorded with him um and I called him up and said listen I want Scott to be part of this but I need I need to get the recording started is there any way you could do it for us and then I'll get Scott in later to redo the drums and he did he came over to the studio and he put the drums down uh and he was an absolute beast um and he was actually on the the versions that the record label heard uh and I sent okay. out um and it actually um nuclear blast ended up um we ended up signing with nuclear blast but um they heard some of the early demos and they loved it even back then. And uh, we got Scott in later on and he redone the drums or whatever. Um, so Christopher was connected with the record early on. So when Scott couldn't do it, it's like, well, it's a no brainer. I've got to ask Christopher. He's, he's an absolute monster. Um, he's a great guy. Um, why he's connected with the record. Why wouldn't I at least ask him if he wants to be a part of it moving forward? And I asked him and he was well up for it. And, uh, Actually, we just flew into the UK yesterday, me and him, and uh, we're starting this tour of, of Europe tomorrow. And I couldn't nice. be happier to have him on board, to be honest. Oh, so tight. So so on that point, did any of the songs change because of his involvement then? Um, well, I think the songs change naturally. You know, do, you know, I've got Davey Rimmer in as well, obviously but, um, on the bass, uh, Rex is doing Pantera, so I had to get Davey Rimmer in on the bass as well and I think naturally songs evolve and they grow and they move naturally I think they should you know depending mm. on the the people you get two different people you get a different bassist and a drummer in I think they should change I think if they don't there's you've got the wrong bass player and drummer I think they should have a character that they bring into the band that makes it do something to, obviously they're the same songs fundamentally but a drummer and a, a bass player hopefully have their own character that they change it slightly you know um, so there's little things that Christopher and Davey do that bring their own flavor to the songs without a doubt, you know, and Christopher, mm. he's such a monster, man. He, he's like, he's attentive. He listens, he, you know, he's different to Scott, but he's his own, he's his own character. So yeah, he, he changes them up. Well, you're playing with two of the best at the minute with Scott Travis as well. I mean, with all due respect to the, yeah, it's uh, focusing on the two there. I mean, at the moment, you're probably playing with two of the premier metal drummers, um, certainly still playing the board. So can you tell me about your dynamic as a guitarist and how you fit in between the both of them? In other words, in what way are they different? Well, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, I'm, you know, they all of the guys connected with him, <laughs> they just make me sound good, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've been playing with Scott now for 12 years. Um, and I, I think when you think of Scott Travis and Christopher Williams and the bands that they're in, you think of, you know, the technical side of things, but they've both got an incredible groove mm. and a, a feel, you know, uh, it's like Van Halen, you know, you think of Eddie Van Halen, you think of the tapping and, and the technical side of things, but there's an incredible bluesy side to Eddie's playing that a lot of people don't forget, but it's not the first thing you think about, you know? So, um, I think there's a lot of groove, that goes into both of their playing, a lot of musicality that goes into both of those guys playing. Um, and they're always looking for, you know, not necessarily the most technical approach, but the most musical approach, uh, which we're all looking for, you know, bass players, guitar players, what's best for the song, what's best for the groove, what feels best. Um, so they're both a, a pleasure to play with. Um, 
because they're both trying to play for the song ultimately, you know? Mm. Yeah, great. Yeah. Ronnie, uh, I'll get to him eventually. Get to him now. <laughs> I think you guys, you blokes were eventually, eventually going to find each other because the, the best generally do. Cream rises to the top. So can you tell me about how your friendship with him started and how you invited him to be part of the project? Yeah. I mean, I was made aware of Ronnie. I think it was Scott called me from Europe and he was out. Uh, he was doing some dates with Thin Lizzy. Um, and they were playing with Richie Blackmore's Rainbow and Ronnie was singing. And I think it was the first time a lot of us were introduced to Ronnie on the, on the world stage, uh, myself, anyway. So mm. he said, you've got to check this singer out. So I, I checked Ronnie out and, um, like a lot of us, was blown away. He was singing all the Dio stuff, all the Rainbow stuff, uh, flawlessly, you know. Um, and from there, I, I think he opened up for Priest in Spain on the Firepower Tour, if I'm not mistaken. So I met him there, um, and when his name came up for this, um, it was a no-brainer, really, um, because I, th- I think this is the type of music. It was important for me to have the influences shine through. Where it's obvious where the influences come from, and I don't mm. think they should be hidden. I think they should be loud and proud. They're seventies some 60s there's some Hendrix in there some 70s some 80s some 90s that's who I am and I think anything else will be disingenuous you know uh, but it's 2023 and I want it to be a relevant record so all those things and I think Ronnie's voice is that as well you can hear where those influences come from but he's a modern singer in 2023 and I thought it was a no-brainer to at least call him and see if he, he'd be up for doing it you know and I think we both came from the same place we both we're both in legacy acts. We, you know, I come from Priest. He comes from Rainbow. Uh, Christopher comes from Accept. Davey comes from Uriah Heap. And in Ronnie's case, when I was talking to him, we both understand that the reality is these bands aren't going to be around forever. So how can we take the DNA and mm-hmm. the legacy from the bands that we've been in and take it into the future when they decide to call it a day one day? You know, because Priest and Rainbow are going to be around. The music's going to be around for the next five hundred years. But we ain't, we're not. So how do we how do we take that forward into the future? And we, we both were on the same page in that regard. So he got it, he got where I was coming from musically, and he got where I think we were both on the same page of what we wanted to do career-wise, professionally, and in, in in a band sense, where we wanted to go as a band. So that was an exciting thing to consider as well. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah. He told me the story about how we uh how Ronnie uh sorry, how um God, I've got a mental blank. What's his bloody name? The greatest guitarist almost ever. What's his name? Deep Purple. I've got bloody Richie. Richie, God. Richie Sorry, he almost yeah. flew away there. Yeah. He told me the story about how we uh, tested him with ice cream. Have you, has he told you that story? Uh, I'm not sure. If he has, I've forgotten. He, he was in a restaurant, I think, and he tested him. I can't remember whether it was along the lines of he wanted to see if he wanted to continue drinking or whether he wanted to have dessert because apparently – Rich is a huge ice cream fan, but he agreed with his uh, flavor of ice cream. Next time you chat with him, get him to tell you the story. But I think that was the moment that he knew that he might have had, you know, some sort of graft with Richie and it might actually work. That's funny, man. I mean, there's some, there's some Richie Blackmore stories that you hear. They're like stuff of legend. Mm. You know, he, he apparently he was a bit of a, a prankster, you know, and you hear like little stories here and there. I think Lemmy told one once. I can't remember. I don't want to. Tell it in case I get it wrong and the internet will rip me to shreds. But oh, yeah, there's a couple yeah. of things out there. He's just known for being a, a you know a mythical prankster, which is just adds to the enigma of Richie Blackmore. 
Yeah, incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You and Andy at this point, have you evolved beyond the point where you're workmates effectively in a, in a lot of ways and you're just drinking buddies that just happen to work with each other? Well, we, we communicate pretty much every day, me and Andy, um, whether it's about the, the album we're working on with Priest or, you know, we're doing something with Elegant Weapons or whether it's a guitar amp or a guitar <laughs> or, you know, a tour or a, a set list we're putting together. We, we're, we're communicating all the time. So it's it's kind of like we, we talk about it like it's, it's our life and we're fortunate to be in a place where uh, that is our life and we're able to live our life like that and make a living in a sense doing this. Um, it won't be like that forever, but you know, I'm 43. I think he's 53. Um, we're still young enough to do it and live every day like it and balance family life with it. So we're lucky really. And we love what we do. It's part of what, who we are. And we're just lucky to be able to do that, I think. Um, mm. And, you know, until we can't do it anymore, I think, how can you not wake up every day and, if you can, I mean, even if you didn't do it as a profession, people do it like they go to work, come back home and get on the guitar and they do it because they love it. We love it and we're able to do it 24-7. So we do it 24-7. And uh, so we're always on the phone. We're always messaging about it. And have you seen this piece of gear that can do this? Or, you know, what do you think about this? Or I've got this sound from this or I've got this riff. Or I sent him some guitar tracks over for the next Elegant Weapons record that I've been working on. It's like it's constant, and why shouldn't it be? You know what I mean? That's what we do, and that's what we live for. Mm. Yeah, gotcha. Mate, I've got plenty more questions, but I'll just do a time check. Have you got another chat in four minutes' time or thereabouts? No, I'm, I'm good for a few minutes. A few, okay, sweet. All right, yeah. Mike Exeter, got along got along really well with him when I spoke to him, and a lovely fella. What are, what are your memories of working with him and Firepower? Uh, love Mike. Um, he, he works on a Redeemer of Souls record as well. Um, that's right, yeah. So he, he co-produced it with Glenn, and then um, he worked uh, as an engineer on the Firepower record along with um, Andy and Tom Allen. Mm. Uh, so he's been a part of the last two records that I've, I've done with Priest. Um, but he's, Mike's great. I mean, he's a great pianist as well. So there, I think um, there was a, a piano part on a song called called guardians i think it was called um on the firepower record which i i had a, i made a hash job of just for the demo and then mike came in and played it properly and i, I never knew he was a piano player and it really blew me away so he's a you know great engineer great producer and a, a great piano player as well so uh and he's a great dude you know as you said he should be more well known i feel he's worked on some classic albums no doubt i mean those two albums that you worked on too and uh but uh, I wish he was more of a household name. That's all. Just for him, because he's such a nice fellow. No, you're right. You're right. I, I agree with that. He's uh, he's worked on some great albums, but you, you wouldn't know it. As, as you said, you're absolutely right. Mm. The last few years have, have really bought us some great guitarists, and you're one of them, but the other's Simon McBride. So have you ever had a chat to him? I haven't. We've we've breezed past each other. Like, we were in a, an airport, um, and... Uh, Purple, we we were about to take off and Purple just landed. Uh, so they breezed past. We said quick hellos and they were gone, you know. Uh, but, yeah, he's a fantastic player. He, he got, I, in my opinion, he's got the right balance between, you know, the, the, the shred. And he's got enough shred, but it's the right type of shred. That's a hard thing to do. 
especially in a band like Deep Purple. You know, if you if you overshred or it's the wrong type of shred, you're going to get shredded to bits. You know, people aren't going to appreciate it. But he's got there's something that he does that it's it's, it's like tasteful shred. It's the right type of shred, uh, and he he got it right in my opinion. I think in many people's opinions. Uh, so yeah, phenomenal player, and he, he fit he fit in really well. Very astute observation, but it, but it also hints at what you might have had to deal with too. I mean, did you? I couldn't. I look. I don't trawl the, the forums. Enough of my stuff gets picked up by blabbermouth, and I read the bloody comments there. But you don't pay much attention to the the troll and the bullshit stuff. But mm-hmm. how how have you managed that aspect of it? Because I'm sure you're aware of what people write and what they say. Of course, uh, it's just the nature of the beast these days. I think you got to, you know, just I mean, for me, people having an opinion. I mean. You, you can't ask for you put stuff out there people are going to have an opinion good and bad that's, that's all you can ask for really um coming into a situation after 40 years it's going to be it's going to be shocking for anyone who's followed the band for that long you know it'll be shocking for me uh you know um if it was something i followed for that long and then it got the situation changed i'd have an opinion about it as well <laughs> you know um mm. but uh you know i, I just tried to kind of uphold the legacy of what went before and kind of put your own thing down moving forward that's all you all you can do really um if you get it wrong people will let you know but it's 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 the band if you're getting something wrong it's the band that you listen to really Mm. um they know how they want it to sound and um but I, i think the fans will let you know if if there was something wrong it's not the troll sites as you said is that that's not where you make your decisions it's uh you know you it's the fans and the fans that keep coming and they, they've been nothing but predominantly welcoming over the years and uh you just, you go with that really you give it a thousand percent and uh hopefully it, it resonates with them and you move forward well you're doing a fucking awesome job mate you should be congratulated on that because not many people could have stepped into the shoes that you stepped into and do the job that you're doing right now i appreciate that thank you very much thank you yeah You've been to Australia, as I mentioned, outside of the Priest Machine and with the Priest Machine as well. Uh, but you've seen two of the most iconic, you're in one of the most iconic heavy metal bands ever, and you've seen another one up close. So Iron Maiden I'm talking about, of course. So what are your observations on how the two camps differ? Oh, that's a great question, you know. I mean, Maiden, I mean, I don't know much about the inner workings of Maiden. So, you know, I wasn't on the inside of that really. Obviously I'm on the inside of, of the priest thing. Um, so I couldn't really, I couldn't really say, but I mean, um, they've both had lots of similarities, you know, it's uncanny really. Some of the similarities, you know, the singers, singer situations and, uh, you know, they've both gone through grunge, the grunge period that you mentioned earlier on. Hmm. Um, and then Maiden are just on a, you know, I mean, Maiden are, I don't know. It's just another level, Maiden. You know, they're playing stadiums, and um, everyone always talks about a Maiden Priest tour. You know, that would be the ultimate. Oh, you know, man. you know, the people want you know that, I mean? right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be so cool, man. I mean, just have elegant weapons open up. Have elegant weapons. Oh, of course, the, of course, you've of got course. to it's got to do that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But uh, you know, and then we start speaking, talking about you know the big four. There was the big four. You know, the the thrash big four. Uh, and then you know people start talking about the 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 UK big four. You know Sabbath aren't around anymore, but 
if they could, you know, reconvene for something like that. So it'll be priest, maiden, Sabbath, and then, you know, we can add some more to that. But um, mm. no, th- I mean, th- there's a lot of similarities, but uh, there must be a lot of differences. But um, I mean, I'm a massive maiden fan. I'm a massive priest fan. But, uh, you know, I-, I couldn't talk about the inner workings because I-, I honestly don't know. Mm. What was it? What was it like working with Lauren back then? Was it was that your introduction to the world stage? I would say so, definitely on that level. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, as far as I mean, they were touring on their own plane, and <laughs> yeah. like, uh, and it was a seven thirty seven. It wasn't like a private jet or anything. It was a seven thirty seven with the gear in the back and mm. touring different countries, and it was a it was massive, you know. So, uh, and then you know, tour buses and stuff and. It was my first experience with that. Um, and, I mean, it teaches you that wherever you go, whatever band you're in, you know, even with priests, you know, you're always going to go somewhere where it's a country or a city or a town or somebody that hasn't seen you or the band you're in. And you can never take that for granted, whether it's Lauren or Priest or Elegant Weapons. You know, we we went, we came down to New Zealand with, with Priest, I think it was 2015, uh, and had never been there before with me or otherwise. So okay. it was, you know, you can never take your foot off the gas and never take for granted that, oh, they've been around for 50 years. This is this is easy. It's You can't ever think like that. There's always going to be, you know, like, so my point is with Lauren, uh, you, you've got to go out there and convince as many fans as possible that, um, or try and take them with you, you know, give your best performance, give it a thousand percent. And with Priest in 2015, New Zealand, no one there had seen Priest before. So it's give a thousand percent, make your best impression and do the best job you can represent in those songs. And that's no different, you know. So those elements are very much the same. Obviously, the the circumstances that you're touring under are very different, but the fundamentals are the same. You go there, you represent what that band means to the band and what it means to the fans, uh, if you have them, and uh, give a thousand percent, you know. Mm. Did, you must have come with a letter of recommendation from uh, the Zeus of Metal himself, Steve Harris, into the priest camp. Well, he didn't know. I, I, um, I, I told him. I called him up and said, uh, "You know, priests have called me." But um, they they actually went through the the maiden office to get my number. Um, right. Initially, they went through a friend of mine and a colleague uh, who gave him an old number. Um, he he didn't know. Obviously, I hadn't seen him for a few years. So he gave him an old number, but luckily, fortunately for me, they were persistent and they went through the maiden production office and got my number through them. So, um, so when I, you know, when I got the gig, I, I, Steve was one of the first. Per- I told Lauren first of all because obviously I had to leave her band, mm. uh, and then I, Steve was the the second person I called and said, "This is the situation." And he couldn't be. He couldn't have been happier. You know. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, it's a great cosign, though, isn't it? To have that. I mean, you've you've gone in with Lauren. You've done such a great job there that you just stood out, and you were the obvious candidate, probably the only candidate, to be honest, to step into the shoes that you stepped into. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there were, um, I'm sure there were, there were other people they were considering, but um, I was just lucky to be considered again uh, for the position. Lucky to be up there auditioning. And uh, lucky to get it, and lucky to be here talking to you today. You know, twelve years later, it's, it's been uh, it's been quite the journey, I can tell you. Was that the dream that you had as a young fella? Is it what you're doing right now, or is this well beyond it? 
Well, it always is. I think. I, th- I think it's always the uh, you aspire to be. That—that uh, that is the dream, but you never think it's going to be reality. Uh, I think you aspire to be as good as your heroes, and uh, you know you you see videos of them touring the world, and that's what you want to do. But I don't think um, you know. I think you aspire to be as good as them. So if you ever got the call, you're ready. But you never think that call's going to come in, um, and, and then sometimes it does. And uh, you you better be ready, you know. Otherwise, you you don't get many opportunities like that. I don't think. But uh, but yeah, I think that's always the dream. But you never think it's really going to happen. And it did, and you're doing a great job, as I said. This album here, Horns for a Halo, it stands on its own, to be honest with you. It's a great album. The Priest Association, notwithstanding here, it's uh, it's an album all of your own. You can hear that. As I've spoken about up top, you've got some magnificent musicians along for the ride. I mean, the thing now is, mate, I can't wait for the next one because I think from here you've got yourself a platform for this band here, Elegant Weapons, to really sort of stand out on their own. No, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Now, uh, now. It's hard now because now you release something and it's well received. Now you you know you got to try and not fuck it up. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, there's some expectation now which we didn't have before uh, in, in the same way. So uh, no, I appreciate that, man. Thanks for the support. Keep doing what you do, brother. Hopefully, I'll see you down here in either band sometime in the near future. But thanks so much again for the chat. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks again, man. I hopefully, see you soon. Absolutely, brother. No worries. Thanks, bro. Take care now. Bye, bye. Well, there you have it, ladies and gents, a conversation with Richie Faulkner from Elegant Weapons and Judas Priest. What a nice fella. Best of luck to him. Don't think he needs it. I think he's got it, no doubt. All right, if you like that one, there are many more just like it over at scarsandguitars.com. And if you like listening, maybe you like reading too, because I've written a book, Scars and Guitars, Volume 1, Conversations from the World of Heavy Metal, Hard Rock and Beyond. Click on the link in the banner on the website and you'll be shifted, transported, yeah, to a marketplace of your choice. And you can download a sample, and if you do complete the purchase, please hit me up. Just on that, some people have, people have definitely bought it because I've got ratings on Amazon. I don't control that. So I've got a couple of fives, a four, and a three, just to be transparent. So somebody out there thought, well, I could probably do better, and other people thought, yeah, it was pretty good. I'll take it all. It's all great feedback, particularly if you paid for it. Very rare in this day and age. All this content creation, it is done for you, the consumer. And you're all cool people. I'm not suggesting for a moment you're not, but we all do this for free, right, us podcasters? There is no monetary value alone in doing it. We do this because it is our passion. Thank God I've got a great job. I love my job. Really happy with things at the moment, I've got to say. All right, thanks for listening to this point. I've got some more information to share with you about the book in a moment, but before we get to that, I'm going to bid you a fond farewell. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast series. Until next time, it is a very goodbye for now. This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew Mackay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. 
In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a, a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Yeah, wise words there. Sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I I can't go do Cold Chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the the fans and the staying power of the the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms that, yes, Playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction to George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then-President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, I, just, I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place. And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with Sepultura. Percussive overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldiner. Chuck was always, um, you know, he, he was, very, you know, very open-minded, and and he was into having his his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for for the best stuff that they had. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five, and Manson gave me that name, and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favourite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book.